Hello, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Lima Online, Lima's weekly online series in which we look at actual topics in the field of media art, uh, but always through the lens of Lima's so-called signature historical awareness. Uh, today is actually quite a special event because we celebrate the opening of our very first online cultural matter exhibition, which also means that I'm here together with my dear fellow curator, Jan-Robert Leegte. Hey, Jan-Robert. Hi, hi, that's so nice. Thanks uh, for introducing me. Thanks for um, being here. And, and maybe you can tell a little bit about what cultural matter is and what it has become within this uh, online framework. Yes, Cultural Matter we started about two years ago, which is um, centered around uh, a single, singular digital artwork, which really sort of pushes the limits of art. And uh, we take that as a sort of case study um, to do a show, first of all, to translate it to the physical space. We'll talk more about that later. <laughs> and uh, and we couple... Uh, we make two events around it. So we usually start with a talk with a guest speaker, and then we have a follow talk to dive sort of deeper, deeper into the topic of the work. So one work and a lot of sunlight on top, uh, and all with the aim to sort of, yeah, unlock um, sort of uh, the discussion on digital art, which still is needed, and there's still so much to be discovered. And for this time, we have Raphael Rosendahl. Yes. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think um, we should first maybe reveal the exhibition, but bum bum bum, um, showing you a bit what, what we have. Um, I'm going to shortly share the link with you, but I think for, for now, it's best maybe if we look at it collectively. We have a walkthrough done by Jan Robert, uh, in which you can see what the exhibition entails and how it functions. So. What do you think, Jan-Robert? Should we just like go to that? I think that will be an excellent idea. Yeah, okay. Briefly, I'll read very short. Oh, no, I'll explain it in the video, right? Yes, so we made an yeah. online show. Here it comes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the online show of Raphael Rosendahl. Uh, this show has been de developed for the series of Cultural Matter. Um, just to briefly introduce this, we got in contact with Raphael Rosendahl uh, at the beginning of the year. And we asked him to participate in our series. And our series always consists of a physical exhibition and two talks or two events. So, first of all, we started, uh, Sanika Hausmann and I both curate this series. We both selected um, five works each. Consists in total of 10 works, which we wanted to show in the gallery space. Uh, Sanika selected five a sort of a formal art historical sort of relevance. She was interested in seeing how they reach back to the suprematists of the Russian avant-garde and how the sort of use of color and abstract simple geometric forms, how they relate back to art history. And I selected five sort of based on um, a certain level of suppressed emotion you could find both in the title and in his, in the quirky way of animation, like um, if you take, for instance, Deep Sadness or Falling Falling, 
they they have this heaviness over them, but they're of course also in these extremely bright colors. So if I wanted to select some of those works. Um, originally we wanted to show these works in the gallery space. And the idea was to have multiple screens, loads of them, and really sort of flood it in this a very uh, um, yeah, this this heavy experience of all these works happening simultaneously. Well, and then of course COVID-19 came in, we had to change our whole strategy. So we the whole program went online, and Rafael was of course the first artist in which this happened. At first so we approached him, would he be interested in doing an online show? At first he was quite hesitant. He was like, um, well, my work already is online. You can basically just go to my website to see my work. So what? how could this be uh, valuable to do an online show? And so we looked further. And at a certain point he said, I have an idea. I actually do see a way out of this. And it's based on recent experiments I've been doing in the gallery spaces in which I show an array of screens which show the same the same work. So it's separate, different instances of the same work at once. I can remember that myself uh, when, when he was in a show by Karen Archie, Freedom of Movement in the Salic Museum Amsterdam. I remember Rafa Rosa had had a, an array of, I think, five screens which would all show the same work which was quite impressive and was also wondering why he did it. So he talked more about this and what he, what he found um, refreshing about this is because he's very interested in uh, generative movement or animation um, in contrast to linear video. Linear video has a fixed time. It is, of course, always the same, same sequence and procedural animation is endless and, and is sort of bound to rules, but it's always different. And he said the only way to really experience that is to have to view parallel instances of the same work, and you can see how diverse the expression of the work is. Voila, that's what we did. So we, that led to this site. Um, we, we, we are showing the 10 works within this website you can see currently. And four instances are um, run whenever you click on one of the works at the bottom. I'll just briefly run through a couple. As you can see, some are still interactive. They're sort of referencing to um, the actual websites. They've been captured as iframes. And some are contain some audio. You can see this one, for instance, if you tap the first one, you can hear the audio. We disabled the audio on the other one, so you can you can hear the sound of one, but observe them how they work together. And as you can see, it is really quite refreshing because like this work, the deep sadness, it really becomes this language of different colors and forms. And again, if you click on them, you can activate the inherent sounds running behind them. I wish you much fun in our show. You can find it at rafaelrosendahl.lead-ma.nl And under CM, you can find more information about the show. Thank you very much.
Yes. Well, that was, that is the exhibition. Hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, uh, I shared the link in the chat and we will share it on the website and so on. So please feel free to explore it yourself because it's always different. That's what happens with generative art. Um, I see in the chat that you're already maybe waiting for someone else instead of me and Jan Robert. So um, Jan Robert, what are we going to do next? Yes, we have um, we uh, invited uh, Christiana Paul over. We we always look for a specific match uh, to have our uh, artist interviewed with, and um, so in this this case we. We would have Christiana Paul over in Amsterdam. We had everything so well organized and we're really looking forward. Then, of course, uh, all this happened. But thank God we can speak online. Um, so Christiana Paul, uh, among many things, uh, a curator at the Whitney Museum in New York, an educator at the New School. She is uh, a writer and lecturer, written extensively about art and technology. Um, and of course, we have Raphael Rosendahl, the invited artist, who is, whose artistic practices comprise of websites, installations, print and writing. He's been a, he's a podcaster, a curator. You can remember him for his screensaver um, uh, show he did. And the creator of the BYOB exhibition format. Um, well, let's go to the talk. Let's go to the talk. And just as you know, afterwards, um, we will all still be here to answer your questions by chat. Um, you will see the four of us and Rafa will be joining in the chat, but that's for later, I would say, indeed, for now, enjoy the talk. Okay, good evening and thanks so much for inviting me to this talk. I'm very excited to have another conversation with Rafael. We've had a few, actually. So uh, my first question to you, uh, Raphael, is your exhibition uh, for cultural matter obviously has been moved from a physical to an online space, so you had to reconfigure everything. Could you talk a little bit about the uh, process of the transition and how the curatorial concept may have changed and how you arrived at this particular selection of work? Yeah, it, it's funny because also this talk changed at the same moment. So that what we're doing right now was planned to be in person in Amsterdam uh, with an audience of maybe 40 to 60 people. And now we have a, access to a worldwide audience. So that's kind of a, a better version of the talk in that sense, because it's very hard to record talks. And so the same way we were thinking about the exhibition, how to bring that online. Um, because all my work is already created for the browser. So the initial idea was there's a hallway of Lima and there's an exhibition space and we would have the same work on four screens. Um, and the idea being that if you make an algorithmic work, every time you run it, it's a little bit different. So that's hard to understand for a lot of people. If they just see a monitor with a random work, they, it could be a video. And even if I show my work uh, to people who are not so familiar, and I just show it in the browser, it's hard to explain what is randomness. And so in this exhibition, uh, we made a layout where it's kind of the emulation of four screens on a wall. And you see the same website four times, and you see that the script is making different decisions in the four instances. And we made a selection of 10 works. So this, it's really an interface similar to what I've done in uh, physical exhibitions, and it's really to emphasize the idea that it's a programmed moving image and not a linear moving image. And I hope that 
showing this will, we're not trying to educate people, but make people feel what randomness is. That's really, for me, I think if people see this and they've seen those works before, perhaps maybe they're familiar with my work. But now, to me, there's a, an ongoing relationship with the audience. So they might have seen this installation in the Stalic Museum or in Korea or another place, and then they can experience it again online, and maybe they're more focused at home. So to me, it's very similar to music, that uh, you might hear music the first time on the radio in a supermarket, and then you might see it at a festival, and then you see it at home, and all those instances uh, build a familiarity, and then you start noticing details that you didn't notice before, you start feeling energy that you didn't notice before. So in that sense, this exhibition is a, an online translation of a physical idea, and I think the home experience is in a way um, more focused and more intimate than in a museum. So you, in a museum, you might feel an anxiety of other people behind you, and maybe you want to spend more time. It's different per person, but some people prefer seeing art at home. Mm-hmm. I also think that the um, conceptual um, setup and experience profoundly changes as a curator I always have the problem that you're um, mentioning when I bring net art or um, generative software art into a museum uh, space, people very often just think, oh, it's a video playing. So for a curator, it's very hard to translate that. And um, I think what you have been doing is a very clever conceit to actually point out that this is generative and the script's change yeah yeah and i think there's been a history of uh, generative process based abstraction even in painting or sculpture and there as well if you don't read the text that comes with it you wouldn't be aware that this was made by chance and not a conscious decision of the artist um, so there's always that element of bringing in unpredictability and the process is very exciting while you're making it but then when you show it does the audience uh, they don't have, it's not a matter of understanding, but do they feel that there's an unpredictability in the work? Mm-hmm. And I think they're more inclined to feel that when they experience something online than in physical space, where they traditionally, just through the experience of art, have had another um, frame of reverence. That being said, did um, is the online exhibition now a direct translation of the same uh, sites or projects, or did you also change the selection? Uh, we changed some of the works a little bit. So I, sometimes I change the pace of works for an exhibition. I might slow them down or speed them up. And uh, we removed sound on some pieces because it would be too much with four instances. So I, whenever I have an exhibition, there are some changes. You, you reduce, in, in this case, actually, the works become a lot smaller. You're used to seeing them full screen and now they're smaller. So then I adjust the speed a little bit. And how did you uh, make the choice of the specific um, projects? I mean, looking at them, there seems to be a nice choreography inherent um, to it or musical composition when it comes to time frames or even uh, the visuals and how the generativity of it unfolds. Uh, that, that was Jan Robert and uh, Sonica that made the selection. Okay. <laughs> and uh, they, they each chose five works and chose a certain direction. And then uh, mm-hmm. because we were talking about 
my work is already online, so what can you add as an online exhibition? And I thought the first step is uh, editing, because for a lot of people, there's maybe 120 websites of mine online, and that might be overwhelming. So I think the focus of curation is very... Uh, to me, it's very, I always like these sort of obvious examples, but it's the feeling when you've taken too many photos on your phone and there's so many that you can't find them anymore. And sometimes my work online, and a lot of online-based artists, they make so much work that for an audience, it's very overwhelming. So I think the role of the curator is to uh, find a connection between a smaller number of works and that makes a powerful uh, collection. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's really about reframing and recontextualizing. So you have become known for a very distinctive uh, visual style in your net art projects and really use um, the browser window as a kind of canvas for abstract pictorial um, spaces. So on the one hand, you reference um, painting and create this contained um, space. But then this painterly space is also very deeply informed by the digital uh, vernacular and how we navigate an online environment. So how do you uh, negotiate these different visual languages when you create a work? Yeah, I think the visual language uh, started out of a combination of, of growing up with the history of painting and growing up with the history of cartoons. Uh, so my father is an abstract painter, so he would be in the other room painting, and then the television would show Looney Tunes and <laughs> Mickey Mouse, and so I was somewhere in between those two worlds. Um, so I, I was always interested in moving images without narrative and without a beginning or an end. And mm -hmm. when I started, it was more figurative and more based on the subject of, of the work. So the subject being a, a jello or a door or mm -hmm. anything. And over the years it became more abstract because I was more interested in the action than the subject. So I, I, I said before in an interview that I moved more from the idea of a noun to a verb. So mm -hmm. if, if before it was, you see a website and you say that's blood and then now you see a website and you say, oh, that's more of a feeling of collapse or things collapsing. And uh, so when you start being more interested in an analysis of movement and interactivity and the, the subject is not important anymore, you just arrive at abstract forms. That, then that's mm -hmm. the most efficient way to analyze movement. Um, so it, it was all logical steps. It was all reduction of like, I'm not... For each work is a step after the previous work. So I'm thinking, how do I translate the experience of a train ride into a browser? So you're sitting in the train and you're seeing the landscape pass by and you could film it. You could hold a camera and just film the whole train ride for three hours and put that online. Or you can sort of make a more diagrammatic experience. And I think that's the word I'm, I'm looking for, that I, I make diagrams of... of because the computer is such a diagrammatic environment. When you think mm -hmm. of code and when you're designing software, you start with a pencil. There's a famous drawing of uh, when they first designed Twitter and it was like text box, 140 characters, post, update, timeline. It's very diagrammatic. And that to me is very close to conceptual art when you're an analyzing, okay, I did this many footsteps between Rome and Venice and that becomes the work. 
So I always see that sort of programming is very close to conceptual art in, in my head. That all that being said, when you're looking for the most efficient visual language to analyze movement and interactivity, that that's where I arrived. And uh, I chose bright colors because they work on any screen, especially in the beginning. Uh, projectors were not that good. So if you use very subtle colors with that are close to each other, let's say you make a work and it's light blue, navy blue, gray blue, and you have an old projector, you don't see anything. They all look the same. So then I was like, okay, pure red, pure blue, pure green, and then as, as hard as possible. Uh, and then as far as shapes, and, and from the beginning, I wanted the work to be scalable. So I... I did not I started off making linear animations and you would have to make an animation that was 320 by 480 pixels and it would already make your computer smoke and uh, then it was you would scale it up in the browser showed full screen and it was very blurry and it, the connection was slow so I thought I have to make work that is really um, compact and can go through the network very quickly and that's why vector graphics lent themselves to that and they're scalable. And I think if you have a diagrammatic approach to composition, then you think more in lines than that you think the way a videographer thinks in terms of a sequence of very rich images. So everything just, all that being said, it was a natural affinity with simplicity, but then also technology pushed me in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think vector animation is really, um, it's so... Uh, important in your work and so much char characterizes your um, visual language. And what nicely comes together here are really the conceptual and practical um, aspects you know, of creating that type of work that is deeply diagrammatic, but then also brings a lot of attention to uh, process. I always think of your work as very conceptual, you know, Some people may find it formalist, but I think there is this deep conceptual level um, to it in that it also highlights programmability. You know? And as um, many artists working in this field have pointed out, there is this deep connection to conceptual art that starts with instructions, very often with language, you know, and builds on that. And any type of software art um, does that too. Um, yeah, and, and computers are just machines to run instructions yep <laughs> and uh, building on that staying with um your web-based work uh, for a moment i also want to talk another aspect of practicalities and that is that you've also become known for the way in which you delineated each um work in the online uh, environment and actually developed a way of selling net art. Not that net art hasn't been sold before um, you created it, but you really managed to establish a model that many other people lean on. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the, the I think the first step was that I was making a lot of online experiments, and I think a lot of people were, and uh, they always felt like oh, there's a file on my computer and now I put the file on the server. But it didn't feel like a website until I put it in a domain name. So if if I had done neoraphael.com slash this work, that work, work one, two, three, until uh, 
somehow it felt like those URLs could change, that the work might be lost, and there was a permanence to domain names that uh, before thinking about selling, that was one of the things. If you think of blog posts, they disappear after a while or they change. And so there was a lot of coders and people online sharing experiments that disappeared later. And I think the the gesture of a domain name is saying, I'm investing money for this work to always be here. And the money symbolizes that uh, the work is finished. It's uh, It's not an experiment. It's not a sketch that... When you start coding, it's very easy to just do version 5B, 5C, version 6.3.1. And before you know it, your whole drive is full of unfinished works. Same with the the idea of taking digital photos and you just have thousands of them. So the domain name was really there as a barrier to say this is a finished work. And then it also was interesting to me that the title of a work is also the location of a work. That... uh, if you think of uh, a famous title like uh, the Mona Lisa, it, it doesn't imply where that work is. But if you think of a website, you just have to remember the name and you can always find the work. So I, I found that interesting. And all that being said, then domain names are one of the few scarce things in the digital space. Everything else is infinitely abundant. Um, so that made it a sellable thing. and. That kind of grew organically, and as I sold a few more, I developed a contract together with a lawyer. Sort of, I looked at other artists who uh, would have a contract selling video art, um, mostly for the reasons that if you sell a, a painting or a sculpture, it's pretty clear the transfer of the object is the transfer of ownership. And with digital media, it's not as clear, so I felt like some kind of written guideline would be helpful. And then I decided to make that contract public to encourage other artists. And all this came from an, a frustration when I was in art school that uh, I wanted to see the history of interactive art, and it was very hard to access. So I felt like if you make computer art, it should be available on the network for others to grow for the next generation. Mm-hmm. I think it was um, an incredibly um, clever step to tie the work to the domain name. Yeah. Um, as you said, domain names were actually also um, a scarce commodity. Um, when I went on the World Wide Web in the early days, all of my artists' friends were doing domain name speculation, and some of them made actually hundreds of thousands of dollars on it if they were clever enough to... Yeah hit the right ones, yeah. And um, then, of course, being involved in the museum world and also acquiring um, work and working with galleries, collectors have always asked over the years, um, yeah, but how? what does it mean if I own it? The idea of hosting and the idea of a domain name is so important to this. And most artists would just uh, have their work as a subdomain on their site, yeah which then um, basically charged the collector with, hmm, do I get a domain name for this? Do I load this onto my server? What if I don't have it? So this whole transaction and delineation um, and treating the domain name as part of the commodity, I think um, really was a game changer for many people who weren't um, as familiar with doing that. Um, I also want to touch upon um, another aspect of your work, and um, that is the changing materiality 
of um, projects and how you translate them from the online to the physical or the other way around. This is very often um, subsumed under this, for me, dubious label of the post-digital, you know, which I have huge problems with the post-digital as, um, as a label for numerous uh, reasons and temporality being one of them. Um, but I think what this term, whether you like it or not, really captures is um, a, re a certain return to materiality uh, among um, younger artists, uh, uh, partly due to technological possibilities, but also due to the fact that our whole environment is now so deeply infiltrated by network technologies. And you see their aesthetics at uh, work in the objects surrounding you. And you also have very much become known for translating works such as Into Time, you know, into very different installation um, environments and manifestations. Can you talk a little bit more about what inspired that process, um, how you work it, which works you choose to translate or not, and how you deal with the gallery space? Yeah, I think the first step was to project websites. That was the, the, the most obvious thing when I had my first exhibition. So there was just a few exhibitions, just one straight projection. But then quickly you start thinking, what, what else is possible? Uh, so that's really the, the ongoing question of what else is possible. Um, so I started showing websites more as a surrounding, where I cover the floor with broken mirrors and repeat a website. So it really becomes a a spatial experience more than just, and there's no clear answer that one way is better or the other. So I, I, every time I see a space, I think about a new way of, of doing it. And then moving to the physical projects, it, it often happened by accident that uh, I was invited to do an exhibition and they had a sponsor to do a lenticular invitation card. So it, it's, it's one of those cards that changes if you change your viewing angle. So they said, do you want to make an image for the, just send us four frames. And we made some tests and I had a few that were more figurative. So, and, and they would look kind of clumsy. The animation is not as smooth as on. So th that's often when you translate, you start with an idea, you think this is possible on the screen. And then you go to another medium and you find out that it doesn't work. So I, I, I did the jello and it just didn't feel like a wobbling jello because it's only four frames and it's kind of blurry. And then I tried some more abstract compositions and then the blurriness became the work that the shortcoming of the medium was actually very interesting. Um, so I, I started it off as a postcard and in a kind of post-internet way, as you say, the, the digital infiltrates everything. I made the postcard, I was very excited and I had it on my kitchen table and I make a little film and I share it on Instagram. And a friend of mine who had collected my website said, oh, this is great. Maybe I can buy the first one and then you can make it in a bigger size. So it was that yeah. sort of uh, community and open studio on the internet that made the work possible. And then you go from there and uh, the behind me, you see a tapestry that's based on a browser plugin and I was making the plugin, but I was also doing a residency in Turkey. And they said, do you want to make works with uh, local craftspeople? And I said, oh, I'm very interested in textile because it's a, a rule-based system and it's systematic. And they said, yeah, we know this weaving studio that you can work with. So things started there just 
being there and, and seeing what's possible. So I do think that a lot of these uh, artists that start out digital and then move to physical things, it, it's a lot about having access to that, where you start mm -hmm. out on the computer. I always thought of the computer as a very humble studio. And a, it, you could say that most people have to have a computer for work or anything else. And so in that sense, it's a free material. It's really... There's no cost to making a GIF animation. That's how you start out. But then as you start building momentum and, and community, then you start thinking, oh, maybe I can explore this medium and maybe I can explore that medium. And the interesting thing for me is then encountering materiality and seeing that it has a very different character, different from what you thought you would do. So with these tapestries, my first instinct was, oh, I choose the threads and that will be the color but then it turned out you can't just fill an area with one color you have to mix three colors at the same time and that creates a different color sensation and then you're experimenting and the work becomes different than you intended but uh, in the accidents that happen in the factory and in the manufacturing that make the work mm -hmm. Um, I want to um, unwrap that a little bit first of all I really like the process of the accidental or um, context specificity of, um, you know, evolving a work here, you have an opportunity and access to a certain kind of technology, or here someone asks you to do a postcard, and from that emerges a whole series of work. So um, I like that very uh, opportunity-oriented um, style of emergence and um, and work. What I really like about the lenticulars, which I think are incredibly successful, is that they are such a beautiful way of uh, translating perspective and the movement of interactivity into the human body. You know? So very often what you do with um, the mouse while visiting one of your websites you know, and influencing um, graphic shapes in the gallery space you do with your body, you know, changing the perspective in front of the lenticular and um, capturing a similar effect. So they're on the one hand distinctly different, but um, they also beautifully manifest, I think, um, this kind of interactivity that you seldom get within the gallery space, you know, where you don't use your, your body to navigate a, um, a piece. Um, I also want you to talk a little bit more about um, abstract browsing from a different angle. I mean, we already talked about the fact that your work is so much rooted in painterly abstraction, but what you did with abstract browsing is also introducing this element of machine vision and how um, basically the machine or the computer sees or designs in terms of web design. I mean, one of the very well-known pieces in abstract browsing is just the Google search engine interface. And it, we look at it and we immediately recognize that interface, but I think you once um, pointed out that nobody wants to do good design would ever design something like that. It's off in so many um, different ways, you know, but it becomes iconic and it's a completely different process. Can you talk a little bit more about that impulse behind abstract browsing? Should I start with the lenticulars? Sure. <laughs> yeah. And the, 
with the lenticulars, what is interesting is that uh, when you design an interactive software, you start with instructions and then decide how much control does the user have. And with lenticulars, all you can do as far as an instruction is give four frames. So at, at that point, the computer cuts them up into thin stripes, and then there's an optical uh, mixing of the four frames as you're moving your body, but you don't have a lot of control. It's really... So I always compare lenticulars a bit to painting in a dark room for 10 minutes, then you have to leave, and then they turn the lights on, and you can see the work, but you have no idea what you made. And after making a few more and a few more, you start to realize certain colors after each other create a certain movement. But there's this idea of uh, a lack of control that's very interesting, similar in abstract browsing. And uh, what I find interesting also with the lenticulars is that the four frames are an instruction and then the lens mixes them optically, but the, the outcome is really infinite. There's so many, um, because it's, it's basically an analog mixing, so there's no, the amount of outcomes is really infinite. It's a, uh, as you're standing in the room and the time of day and the light, it, there's so many. And I like that there's this parallel with the, the screen being this mesmerizing thing. If you're sitting in a restaurant and you just can't take your eyes off of the TV hanging there, even if you don't want to look, it just has this magnetism. So that's one of the things of the screen that I wanted to capture, but not in a screen. So uh, I always see them as they are computers, but non-electronic. So they're constantly running the software of the four frames, but they, they're mixing them in an analog way, not in a digital way. And then the abstract browsing plugin uh, really was a way of almost seeing the browser as a lens to code. Like, so the, the browser is a, is a camera that is capturing code and putting a filter between you and the code. Um, and it really started with not many intentions, just to see what happens. And I, it's, it's once again one of those things. I was developing the software uh, with my programmer, and we had to decide what's the smallest item that the uh, program will still render, because it's not going to render really small single pixels. So we had to decide on a minimum. And in my head, I imagined something like New York Times would be one big field and then a headline and then a block. And, and you start rendering it, and it was much busier than I expected. So that was my first shock that the internet was much more detailed than I thought. So I was like, can we, can we make it more simple so it feels more like my work? But then after a while, I started accepting the chaos. And uh, so that, that's one of those things that you 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 move towards the material. You don't make the material move towards you. Um, so as I was browsing, I started analyzing my own browsing behavior. So you, I, I surf the web as usual. Anyone can download the plugin for free. It's abstractbrowsing.net. And at the end of the day, I go through my browsing history and see if I visited websites that I didn't we visit before. So. And then say, oh, what does New York Times look like? What does the Wall Street Journal look like? What does Facebook look like? And it's a little bit like uh, seeing the diagrams of a building. So, and then as time went on, I just kept surfing in different ways and surfing at different aspect ratios, different screen sizes. And so it's really a, a diagrammatic analysis of information. And as you said, one of those things 
about the internet is that the big websites are not designed by humans. They're partially initiated by humans, but then they start learning and they start, they start listening and looking, what are we doing? Where are we clicking? And then they start A-B testing. So if Facebook decides, let's make the banner a little bit bigger so people click more on the ad. And then it turns out if the ads are too big, people don't come back. So let's make it a little bit smaller. So they're constantly moving things around in different regions of the world and listening. So um, I always thought that the traditional idea of abstraction is to make ideas that come from within and give them a shape. And in abstract browsing, the, the, the compositional ideas are not coming from me, they're coming from the world and from machines listening to the world. So in a sense, traditionally abstract painting is about conscious decisions and deciding what's beautiful. And abstract browsing is more about deciding what's efficient. So the, the computer is constantly deciding what's the most efficient solution for this composition. Yeah. I very much like how the diagrammatic plays out in that particular um, work and uh, what you just talked about. And then also, as you already mentioned, how it um, ties that exploration back to the beginning of computing because the Jacquard loom, which was created in 1801, I think, um, of course, is often mentioned as one of the origins of programmability yeah, and developing pattern. Yeah. So another question I have for you is um, how you feel your work has evolved um, over time. I have not seen all of your exhibitions. I've seen many of the catalogs and I've been to all of your solo shows at Postmasters Gallery here in New York. And the exhibitions all had a very distinctly different flavor. I mean, there's always this underlying framework for your um, explorations and um, how you approach work, but um, how you worked, for example, in one of the later shows with negative spaces in this form of cult um, sculptural painting or uh, your haikus, they're all distinctly different. So can you talk a little bit about your, uh, the evolution of your work? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's not when you're making the work, I always talk about falling in love with an idea. So uh, let's say I was in art school, I was trying all kinds of materials. I was doing photography and silk screening and drawing and painting and you're just trying stuff. And then I found the computer and I fell in love with that. So it was a, just drawn to it and then it's undeniable that that's the direction and then as time goes by um, i start working on tapestries and i think oh this is so interesting and there's so many things i can do here that i couldn't do on the screen or i start working with and then the haiku was something that i'm always looking i'm always thinking about efficiency and reducing work in my life and it's sort of this the, the pure conceptual and i arrived at, at um, Haiku as this form of generating an image in someone's mind with with uh, language as code. So, and then the next show was about these shapes cut out of metal, these sculptural paintings, where I was thinking about the absence of an image creates the image and translating the idea of. A, so, basically, what I'm saying is every one or two years, I arrive at a new idea and fall in love with it, and then suppress all the other work, all the other series. And then I think this is the solution. 
and then a few months later a new idea happens and i sometimes i i think a lot of artists have this decision should i stick to one medium and go very deep with that or should i go from one idea to the other to the other um for me there's always a lot of simultaneous series going on i never stopped making websites and that was one of those hesitations i think a lot of digital artists they have a hesitation when they move from the screen to other media that there's the concept am i doing this because i want to or because i think it will make money yeah <laughs> is the, is the, and and so both can be true at the same time and then the idea is like if i move to poetry will people laugh at me because it's like amateur uh, and every time you make a step you're wondering am i doing this because i'm looking for uh, some sort of confirmation or success or am I doing it because, because of my own interest and because the work needs to exist so that's and I think Postmasters more than other galleries even is, is uh, a gallery where I like to try new things and make the first gesture of a new series and um, I think they're very open to any idea and they don't edit me so um that's, it just happens that every time in New York, I use that as a sort of key moment to launch a new idea. Um, but it, it gets to the point where you, you get to the question, why do I make what I make? And then that question is unanswerable. There's, there's no other answer than curiosity that I, I'm curious and then I want the work to exist. So that's the most honest answer. But then after analyzing all that and, and talking to other people about my work, I think I'm attracted to systems and then testing systems. So the system of the haiku or the system of a silhouette cut out of a piece of metal, there are all these rule-based systems that then within that system I can start exploring. Um, and, and maybe my definition or one of the definitions of art is when a personality meets a material and so for me, it's interesting to try different materials and see what can, how will this material respond to me and how will I respond to that material. Yeah. And to me, the um, evolution of your work always has looked very natural because there is, an under, there is an underlying system to even that, I think, which speaks to your um, fascination with uh, systems, even if the works are um, very different and they tie back to ideas that you've always explored, whether that's um, abstraction in language and the haiku certainly is, you know, one example of the most um, stripped down essential form of the of poetry and um, of the use of language, you know, or um, the way you manifest other ideas. And I think what you pointed out here is also um, how important the gallery environment or art world environment is to nurturing certain kind of practices, because so many um, artists have come to me also and have said, oh, should I turn this into an object to make money? You know, and I, I always say, just don't bend over backwards and, you know, violate the work in order to make it sellable within a, a gallery context. So that's unfortunately um, a practical aspect that is very real to artistic practice you know, and to curatorial practice. Um, so a couple more questions um, I have. Has your practice um, changed during you know, 
quarantining and isolation and this time of the pandemic or is it yeah. uh, life as usual many artists are saying well i'm working at home anyway so <laughs> yeah i i saw a meme of most annoying people during quarantine and, and one of them was like the prepper who has a lot of face masks and one of the annoying people was the artist who said oh i've been doing this for 20 years it's no big deal so uh I, in a strange way uh A lot of exhibitions are postponed, and then this exhibition we had to change the idea. But uh, I, I do feel like because I'm a net-based artist and I, I do make physical works, but I work with factories that I don't even have to go to. Um, there's not much difference, but there is a slowing down that was kind of needed. I think there's no traveling now, and so I have more time to develop new ideas and sketches. So I feel more focused and. Uh, I wouldn't want this state to go on forever, but I think for a lot of people, it was a nice uh, reset moment to really focus on and on the core of, of creating and sitting and uh, thinking of ideas. Yeah, I think it was definitely a reset moment for the world. That's a yeah, nice it, it, this, this is it. speaking from a privileged position that yeah. I'm not at financial risk and I don't have to take on a job that I don't want or be evicted or things like that. But I do think that the art world was headed in a direction that was embracing almost a Hollywood scale mm -hmm. that was not necessary. It wasn't making the, the, the contemplative experience better if, if museums are overcrowded and if the, there's so much travel required and you hop from art fair to art fair where the work is not really in a good condition to see. It's, it's too busy. So I think there were a lot of aspects of this acceleration of the art world that uh, were detrimental to the concentration of contemplative observation. Yeah, absolutely. And it remains to be seen um, if things will fundamentally change when we go back to a new kind of um, world. So one um, final question, uh, what are you working on right now? Have you fallen in love with a new idea <laughs> or? Yeah, I, I, unfortunately I can't show it yet. It's, uh, um, but I've been making a lot of, so when I make websites, I start off with a sketchbook, I'll grab it. So the, the the idea of websites came after I had been making animations. It's not because I encountered the computer. So the first 10, 12 years, any idea I would have would be a moving image idea. So the idea, oh, there's a hand and you can touch the fingers and what, what does that mean for the representation of a hand? Or uh, shapes are falling down in a downward movement. Or it, but it was always... A moving idea and now as I'm sketching my, my ideas always start with like this so just diagrams and I think like oh these can start cool. rotating yeah. or whatever but as I make these drawings they start out like this and then I move to the computer mm -hmm. and then more and more I would make an idea and I think I don't know how this should move the sketch is good as it is and so I'm at the point where maybe before one out of ten sketch ideas was a still and nine were moving and now it's more half and half so i'm still making moving images and now i'm looking for the next material to take these sketches and so i've been working with uh, laser cutting different kinds of plastic and also working with 
baked enamel and sort of looking. But this is a, not the, the real way it will be, but sort of I'm expanding on that, trying yeah. different kinds of materials. So I, I think with abstract browsing and the lenticulars, there was a computational process. And here there's not a computational sort of process of how I arrive at the composition. It's just it, the websites were a framework. And then within that framework, no one ever asked me, why did you make this one? Why did you make that one? Because the framework is, is uh, so new. Um, so then I've always been a bit nervous about taking those sketches that are purely from me and not from a computational process. But I'm slowly moving towards that. That's interesting. Yeah. So basically yeah. Uh, stripping it down even further and concentrating yeah. on the <laughs> intrinsics of the of yeah. the composition and the system. It's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I don't know if there is anything um, else you wanted to bring up in our um, conversation. No, I, I think uh, this will go on YouTube and we will answer questions there. And uh, so there'll yeah. be audience questions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's um, make it live and take questions from the audience. Thank you so much for your time and once again for inviting you. me to this conversation. Thank you for your questions. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Christiana and Raphael, for this interesting talk. And um, thank you even more for joining us here in the screen. You can see we're all nicely together here. And just to explain briefly, um, Raphael is there. He's really there. He's real, but he won't talk. So he will, he's in a place where he can't talk. So he will answer your questions in the chat. And as you can see, uh, the discussion has already started, but I think we want to go back to the first question that Raphael already tried to answer or answered, but maybe we can dig a little deeper. Uh, Christiana, do you want to say something, add something, ask something to Raphael in regard to this? Yeah, I loved uh, Raphael's answer about you need to care about the work, which is still one of the big issues. So um, there's absolutely no doubt that um, net art pieces and Raphael's pieces will disappear, quote unquote, at, um, at some point. I have commissioned by now over 100 works for the Whitney's Artport website, and many of them are not functional uh, anymore. I think preservation over the past two decades has made enormous progress. I would actually say that preservation is, um, of digital art is way ahead of collection of digital art in museums. So there is, as of yet, I think not enough care um, or interest in those objects there to actually bring them into collections and make that commitment. So we have um, preservation strategies ranging from storage to emulation to migration to recreation and every work would need to be approached in a different way. I would also, and I actually think I saw Annette Deckard in the attendance of this talk who is an expert in that uh, field, I would think that Raphael's work is actually a little easier to preserve than um, other ones, just due to its very uh, nature and more easily recodable. It's a huge topic we could talk about for hours. <laughs> hey, let me ask a question. Uh, Raphael, uh, or both, as mm -hmm. one is in chat and one is live uh, in screen. Um, we spoke briefly about the domain, main, domain name model. Uh, um, 
I would like to just go slightly deeper into it and sort of sort of realism also from personal experience. Um, I think I saw it very much as a, I think, a educational move. It really was a way to sort of get people to take that art serious. Um, so apart from the very practical points I heard, I must correct me if I'm wrong, but I have noticed um, over the years now, but probably 10 years after the introduction of this model, or um, that many collectors or museums don't even transfer the domain name. They, um, they happily leave it at the artist. Um, uh, it seems to be a, trans, a, a state that has transitioned by now and has been, you see artists go back to subdomains. It, it seemed more like an emancipationary move. Um, and that being said, talking about uh, collecting and preserving uh, the, the domain name, there, there seems to be a sort of um, care you mentioned, but it's also sort of um, collecting that art is very um, carefree because you 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 commit yourself financially to it, but the artist keeps the domain, it keeps the files on the server, keeps maintaining it. So it's it's a very uh, carefree way of collecting. Uh, do I see something? Do I miss something here? Um, well, yes and no. I would definitely say that attitudes towards collecting have changed in that there isn't the um, obsession with the original that you would have with um, physical objects anymore. I think it's also very generational because um, if I talk to very young people, this whole idea of the original versus the copy is kind of vanishing. They don't care that much um, about that aspect um, anymore. Um, of course, the model of, oh, the artist is maintaining, etc., works only um, as long as the artist is alive and also makes um, a commitment in a kind of contract to um, keeping the work in place which is a tricky thing. I mean, just think about how often people move around thing them. So that can very easily become problematic. Um, when it comes to the pieces we have commissioned for the Whitney's Artport website, uh, many artists still have them on their site. But even if we link to a site, we make sure that we have the files on the server. Yeah. One of the mantras of um, preservation of net art and digital art in the early 90s was distribute or die. Yeah. Uh, keeping as many copies as possible on as many servers as possible. Yeah. But I agree with you that attitudes have um, changed. I still think that uh, Raphael's model holds a lot of um, value as a conceptual one too. And, and, and Raphael, I close, a bit related to this, I have a question for you because I know here at Lima, you did a documentation video of all your websites you had made until that day, um, which sh was showing like how the uh, works were functioning at that very day, at that very date on the current technology that was available, which shows a sort of care of um, the work in its time and the way the interaction was at the moment you made it. Um, and how do you feel about like uh, the, uh, the, the browsers that keep on updating and the interaction that might slightly change the aesthetic that might slightly change like how do these two coincide in your practice maybe that's a very long question to answer <laughs> by chat um can i can i make it more binary uh i don't know <laughs> um do you care a lot about um the aesthetic and the interaction of the work at 
the moment you made it? Like, is there an original interaction with the work, so to say? It's becoming a performative Q&A. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know, in a way, the, the documentation question is also something you might be confronted with um, working at an art institute. Like, how do you see the two of them, like, coincide, so to say? Um, yeah, I think documentation is always a step um, in preservation too. And coincidentally, Annette Decker has really written about when documentation enters the work itself. Like Jody has done a few pieces, and I know you um, you talked to them. I think where the documentation um, of a work actually entered the work and became um, part of it. Yeah. Um, I think obviously the interaction at the moment when the work was um, created is kind of defines an intent. If you would recreate that work later, you would probably slow down or whatever it takes to get to that level again, which is a common problem also in preservation. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, so as Raphael says, higher frame rate uh, and resolution are actually crucial that process too absolutely no but it's just because he, he did like make this documentation video that also shows a care of how the work was of course at that very yeah. time but yeah. also with the awareness that it might yeah. change again yeah. over time so i think this too but it easily starts to question the status of a work which is also so interesting of course in in, yeah. in, in the field of digital art by definition yeah i think there's another question for you but maybe it's already being answered because i also don't catch up Anything, everything that happens simultaneously? It's going to be a parallel thing. Maybe I'll ask Christiane another one. I kind of like to hear her opinion on actually Raphael's point in, so the the idea of the show we created um, and Raphael proposed was to show instances of the same work. And is the point mm -hmm. he wanted to make is that um, a lot of people miss uh, the magic of, of a procedural work and yeah. sort of confuse them with an animation, a linear animation. Um, that seems like a sort of also a classic misconception within media art. Is, is there anything you as a curator, how do you deal with this? Uh, yeah, you really have to come up with strategies of liveness. And I think uh, what Raphael has done or proposed is um, a really clever strategy and that is showing multiples or having let's say different stations for one work to actually make clear that oh here is not an animation just running but um, clearly those instances are off. Um, what I also noticed within exhibitions as mundane and ridiculous this may seem there always is an in-crowd who has an understanding of the medium and starts messing with it. When I showed um, one of Mark Napier's pieces, um, Riot at the Whitney Museum, the people who knew what it was started just typing in URLs of porn sites. Yeah. All day long, you know, and within the museum, that made it very clear that this was a live site, you know, but led to all kinds of discussions with the education department. Uh, what do we do? Do we censor? Do we leave this open? You know, that's another aspect of liveness within uh, the museum space. But I think somehow you have to come up or at least try to come up with strategies that uh, make this real-time nature of the work clear. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it falls flat, yeah. 
And then uh, in the meantime, Rafa is going full force in the chat. I really feel like I'm <laughs> part, like um, this is a match and I have to look at all the players that are involved. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, but yeah, I think everyone who is there can, can read that. But Christiana, I don't know if you also see it. So yeah, um, I, I'm actually thinking about parts of the um, conversation and Simpson's uh, question about mm -hmm. uh, when one considers a piece finished or um, if one would go back to rework it. Um, and of course, you know, Raphael may have his own um, approach to that, but it's something that also comes up very often. And um, at the Whitney, for example, we came to the conclusion that we have to think about a work as having a digital life, that artists actually return to it sometimes and change it without there being any preservation issues. Yeah? Huh. So we um, have a GitHub repository where we record changes of pieces because sometimes artists come and ask precisely that. Oh, I did this piece with... Um, AI services and bots, but they have improved so much. I want to use different ones. Can I change the work? And we don't want to say no to that, but then kind of incorporate those changes and keep track of it um, in a GitHub uh, repository. Yeah, in a way that is slightly related to all types of media arts. Um, Lima takes care of a big collection of video artworks and we often like receive new scans of uh, a work that was made so if technology improves yeah. like artists uh, like want to like and that, that can either be the preserving institute taking care of that but it can also be on behalf of the artist saying like i want to take back my uh, tape file or whatever and and slightly adjust it like in accordance to current technology so mm -hmm. i think that's um there's also continuation going on there already since the 60s and 70s so to say yeah absolutely mm -hmm. Okay. Also reminds me, oh sorry, briefly of, uh, it's also, that's the conservation side, but there's also the artistic side of, of dealing with the performative nature of code in a way of coding. Mm -hmm. I have to think of Jody who are like very, they finish a work and they, it goes in solid concrete. They just never touch a, a single character of the code. Whereas if I think of Damon Sacconi, he constantly updates his work and he, he sort of is very clear about that. So it's also an artistic choice, which makes it even more complicated. Yeah. Although Jody have done it too with Jensen. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I've been asked this uh, last question about the uh, current um, crisis creating new opportunities for net art um, a lot. Um, I'm a little skeptical um, about this. Right now, there's enormous interest in net art, and I've been so busy over the past weeks um, doing interviews, being on the radio, um, like Art Forum fe featured um, the last project we commissioned for Artport by Sam Lavini and Tiga Brain as their critics pick. And it's really great to see the medium getting so much attention. But I doubt that this will be sustained once we're back to physical exhibitions and net art will regularly be a critic's pick. I'm not so sure about that. Right now, net art has the privilege and software art to be 
the only art form that can be experienced in its native form you know, rather than as representation. And that, of course, brings a lot of attention to it. I think that's great from an educational perspective. I'm not so sure about uh, this being a sustained interest once we're on the other side of this. I but I'm enjoying the moment. More, <laughs> I have to be slightly more positive. I think once people get acquainted with net art, they might get hooked <laughs> and they might want it like also when we are fully back. In the I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. Maybe it's more a hope than a statement, but let's, let's hope so. Yeah. Huh. Well, I've, I've seen it or... Um, we all have seen it go through um, so many waves since it emerged Absolutely. in the early 90s, waves of interest and of interest flattening. You know, so, yeah, net art certainly won't go away. It's the interest that goes up and down, as it does with other uh, media too. Okay, so I think we, uh, we say bye here and meet in the chat. <laughs> cross-platform cross meetup <laughs> thank you so much christiana and rafael for yes, joining us thank, thank you very, you. very much let's yeah bye -bye. next time <laughs>